from New York City. This is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. And this week, I want to get a lot or at least a modest amount out of a little. I want to do one of those shows where we see that so much in this language that we speak, in any language that you speak, is just full of implications, full of fun facts, full of maybes and history, practically every syllable you utter. And this week, I wanted to do, of all things, get this, this is what the whole show is going to be about this week, am. Just that form of the verb to be, just little old am. Whenever you hear somebody say am, there is so much to it that you would never think about. It's always been one of my favorite words. Sometimes people ask me for reasons I'm not quite sure of what my favorite word is. And for some reason, I always end up saying watercolor, which is not really true. One of my favorite words is really am, but you don't pop that out at a party because you won't be invited back. Am starts out as part of a grand train wreck that the English verb to be is. The English verb to be is extremely irregular, don't you know? And so I am, you are, he is, he was, we were, and then we be, been, what in the world is all that? Did all that really come from what started as one verb? Is that what irregular is? Clearly, that verb isn't irregular. That verb is insane. And what happened is that as many as four different verbs all came together and sprinkled some of their forms. And that's why we have all of that stuff. So there was an Old English form, bayon, although in Old English voice, wait a minute, bayon. And that's where we get be and ben from. But then there was a verb, wesan, and that's where we get wesan, is was and were. Apparently there was something like aron, and that's where you get the r. And then even further back, there was something that would have been originally something like esmi. This is back in Proto-Indo-European, our language on the steppes of Ukraine. And that's where you get the am and the is. So all of those verbs together in a kind of a hive. English, as always, is one weird little language. The other Germanic languages have mixed be verbs too, but not that mixed. And frankly, it's probably evidence of something that they don't like to tell you about English that you might be hearing here first. The whole business about English coming to Britain in the 440s AD, almost certainly not. English was already spoken in some form on that island for reasons that I don't have time to get into. But the nature of this to be where it's so mixed is one more piece of evidence of that because it seems like there were a bunch of different Englishes all coming together. And that would make a lot of sense if the people who got there in 449 AD or thereabouts actually met some English speakers who had already been there. And because they had been there and the other English speakers had been over on the other side of the North Sea, they would have spoken different dialects of Old English. And next thing you know, you've got something like this mixture of be and was and are and is. But just taking little am, it's part of this grand train wreck. And then you have this, mm, where did the mm come from? Well, that mm is a first person singular ending in earlier Proto-Indo-European languages, for example. And it may have come from what began as me. A pronoun can end up sticking on to the end of a verb. And next thing you know, after a while, it becomes an ending. But it may also have had a different source. A little too often for it to be an accident. 
a great many languages have when they're doing things having to do with I, me in the first person singular. They have m,、mm, and then for the second person singular, it's something like t. It's very common. So me is m. And then you is to. For example, in English, it used to be thou. You know, we used to be more normal. In so many ways, we used to be more normal than we are now. Isn't that true of all of us? But in any case, the m、mm、and the t is this pattern, and it's thought that that may very well be from the same sort of reason that we've seen in a much earlier show that so many languages have a word like mama for mother and something like tata for father. No matter what language it is, it's people who live underground, people who live up in the air, people who live upside down, people who live in Pittsburgh. You always have this mama tata pattern as too common for it to be an accident, and that's because mama ma is the very first thing that a baby is going to do with its mouth, and the second thing may well be to do something a little more creative and go ta ta ta. Well, that first thing is going to be mistaken by the mother as a name for her. Same thing with ta ta. Well, ma. May also be something that you tend to use to refer to yourself because it comes so easily. So whatever you have on there, it's going to be worn down over time, and maybe m is most likely. And then t is the second thing that you're going to do, and so that's going to be the thing that ends up referring to you as opposed to me. M and t are going to keep coming up, and m is maybe more likely for yourself because it's the easiest sound for something to wear down to. People speculate about such things, and you know the truth may never be known. But it's always interesting to investigate things like me and mama and being good to mama, which brings us to our first song today, and that will be "When You're Good to Mama" from Chicago. Very good song, and this is from the original. Broadway cast. It's very interesting. Chicago is one of those scores where even people who don't like show music like it. I once had downstairs neighbors. They had tattoos, practically, you know, in their digestive systems. You know, they're chain smoking people. The music they listen to, you know, punk rock, etc. And they also love Chicago. They loved it when I would play Chicago. Their dog was also、um, their dog was a lesbian. It's interesting. Anyway, here is when you go to mama. If you want my gravy, pepper my ragu, spice it up for Mama. She'll get hot for you. When they pass that basket, folks contribute too. You put in for Mama, she'll put out for you. The top, the ladder, are the ones the world adores. So boost me up my ladder, kids, and I'll boost you up yours. In earlier English, you could say "I am your father," but then you could also say "I be your father." So you would say "Ik am ure fader," and that's "I am your father." And then you could say "Ik beo ure fader." And that's I am your father, but they had different meanings. Ik am ure fader means I am your dad. You are, you know, my spawn. Ik beo ure fader. That means I'm being your father. 
like I'm playing your father in a play or to the extent that I don't think plays per se existed when old English was being spoken. It's I be your father as in, you know, your real father got killed. And so I have served as your father. And so I might as well am your father. I beo your father. So there were two shades of be. And a lot of us are kind of used to that with something like Spanish, where we have to deal with that difference between ser being permanent and estar being temporary. And so yo estoy feliz, I'm happy right now, but I'll be crying into my beer later, as opposed to yo soy tu papa, I am your father, that's presumably permanent. And you know, that's one of those things, it's one of a great many things in English, where the reason that that's the way be was in earlier English is because That's the way it is in many Celtic languages. Those are the languages that were originally spoken there, the Indo-European languages that were originally spoken in Britain and thereabouts. Today, Welsh is Celtic. Today, Irish is Celtic. Today, Breton, spoken across the channel in France, is Celtic. Those languages used to be much more widespread. And when people speaking English came to Britain, long, long before 449 AD, but we won't get into that. They encountered people who, big surprise, had languages of their own, and they created a kind of English that was full of Celticisms, and one of them was this double B. That's the way B is, for example, in Irish even today. And there are all sorts of things, all of that overuse of do that we have. So do you have any asparagus? I do not have any asparagus. Why that usage of do? That's something that you have to unlearn with any other language that you try to learn from English, unless you happen to be learning, for example, Welsh, which has exactly that kind of usage. It's very interesting. If you look all around the world, there's really only one set of languages that use do exactly the way English does now and or did in Shakespeare's time. And it's the Celtic languages. And so we have a language that is a Celtified German. And, you know, there's some people who refuse to admit this. They say, oh, well, maybe the Celtic languages were a contributing factor, but not, I don't know why it's Kate Blanchett who's saying it, but a contributing factor. And so what they mean is, no, they're just going to keep telling the same old story about old English marching along and big surprise. The Vikings left a lot of words in it when they started speaking it. And then the French came and big surprise, they left a lot of words. No, the story is more interesting than that. It's Celtified and it wasn't just some passing influence. It's the reason that we say, do you have any asparagus? And it's the reason why an old English speaker could say either ik am or ik beo ura fatter. English on lonely nights goes upstairs and dresses up as Welsh. So English is the, the J. Edgar Hoover. It's the, the, the Dan Daly, go look that one up, of languages. And that means that we have to, for example, have a song like The Kiss of the Spider Woman's Dressing Them Up. Diana, see, I do not not like Candor and Ebb. This is from Kiss of the Spider Woman, John Candor and Fred Ebb, Dressing Them Up, which is frankly the only song I have ever liked in this score. Shoot me, show music fans. Sorry. Each mannequin is perfect. Dressing them up. I love the dressing them up. The subtle tilt of a hat. Touches like that make me the best of the lot at dressing them up. I was the cream of the crop. The way I buckled the belt, folded the felt, helped me to get where I got. 
before I got where I got, I was the absolute top. For example, once I asked for a Balenciaga scarf to stuff in a mannequin's purse. They told me no one on earth will see. I answered, no one on earth but me. I stood my ground as no other dresser does. And darling, guess what? Balenciaga it was. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. English, you want it to be so logical. And so you say, I am your father, aren't I? Well, you would never say, I are your father. Shouldn't it be, I am your father, amn't I? Now, of course, you probably do not say, amn't. And to any American, that sounds utterly backwards. It's like if a traffic signal had the green light on top and the red light on the bottom. There's no amant. But you might imagine that there must be people somewhere who say amant because that really is how the language makes sense. And in fact, there are people in Scotland and in Ireland who do say amant. And of course, we read that as quaint when really it's more logical. And you're probably thinking this is my cue to go into some made up and stupid Scottish accent, but I'm not going to do that this time. Instead, let's listen to somebody say Amant and let's have it be somebody famous. Let's have it be somebody famous and dead. Let's have it be, I'm not talking about Irish, let's have it be James Joyce. Have you ever heard James Joyce? You've always wanted to actually hear him. Here he is reading from Finnegan's Wake and listen to him actually using Amant. I frankly don't know what he's talking about either, but I can guarantee you that listening to him read Finnegan's Wake is a whole lot more fun than enduring the work itself. Early Joyce is much easier. But in any case, the word marthered is martyred. Mary Alacock, well, that's the kind of thing where he wanted you to be looking it up. He actually did that challenge to us on purpose. He's challenging us from his grave. But listen to him reading from Finnegan's Wake and listen to what can happen to am when we're not listening. Am and I up since the damp dawn, Martha and Mary, all a cook, with Corrigan's pulse and very coarse veins, my pram axle smashed, Alice Jane in the time, and my one-eyed mongrel twice run over, soaking and bleaching boiler rags, and sweating cold, a widow like me, for to deck my tennis champion son, the laundry man with the lavender flannels. And if you're saying Amant, and if it once was more widespread, which it definitely was, say Amant over and over and over again. And especially if you're given to saying something more like Amant, just say it over and over again. And once you get tired of that, you'll realize that you're saying ain't. We think of it as an equivalent to isn't, but wouldn't that be in, 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 in? So that doesn't seem to quite work. That's because it started with Amant and it became ain't. Ain't doesn't sound exactly like a combination of am and ain't, but then again, won't certainly doesn't sound like a combination of will and ain't. These sorts of things happen, but won't we think of as quite 
logical and quite normal. But for some reason, everybody started chasing after ain't like a little varmint. It's kind of like this business of how people use literally. Everybody decided that literally was that kid in fifth grade who starts being teased for no reason at all and then ends up going on to be, you know, big man on campus. There's nothing wrong with him then, but everybody just chooses to pick on that kid. Well, that's literally these days. And for some reason, that happened to ain't. And what I mean is that it used to be okay to say ain't. It's the funniest thing in a lot of British novels, for example, to see the sorts of things that were once considered proper. So, for example, in David Copperfield, which is much more pleasing to read than Finnegan's Wake, you have Aunt Betsy. And she's a real proper kind of person. It's not for nothing that in the movie they cast her as Edna May Oliver. She is a proper lady. And yet again and again, she says things like, Mr. Dick is his name here and everywhere else now. If he ever went anywhere else, which he don't. Why don't? Isn't she supposed to say he doesn't? But she says don't. So that was considered okay, even of a cosseted kind of person like her. Or in Trollope, I suspect most of us don't read Trollope much anymore. I never did. But in Trollope, the way we live now, we are now in 1875. You have a line like this. I ain't afraid of him, if you mean that, continued Lord Nitterdale. So the person who says, I ain't afraid of him, if you mean that, isn't like, I ain't afraid of him, if you mean that. It's not that kind of person. It's, I ain't afraid of him, if you mean that says Lord Nitterdale. And so this is a high and mighty way of speaking that was considered okay. But for some reason, in the late 19th century, ain't started being associated apparently with Cockney language. And suddenly everybody hated it. The full story there, just like the fact that English did not come to Britain in the 440s AD, has never completely been told. You ought to consider writing it dissertation or something like that. There are stories about English that they don't want you to know. Somebody ought to be planning a book next year with a certain publishing house about that. I don't know who, but somebody ought to be writing a book about the true history of English. It might even be called the English history they don't want you to know. Anyway, we're on ain't. And so what about Ain't Misbehavin', the song? It's a wonderful song. And, you know, if you want to hear somebody sing it, go press a button. This is going to be Fats Waller just playing it on the piano. He was such a good piano player, usually drunk off his butt at the recording sessions and yet just playing like a dream. This is Ain't Misbehavin'. Just listen to somebody playing the piano in 1929, probably early in the morning, hungover in Camden, New Jersey. Here it goes. Right here comes what's called the verse. That has nothing to do with the words, but the beginning part of the song. Listen, now I'm really straying from what the topic of the podcast is supposed to be about. This is going to be over before it begins. Listen to this modulation in the verse.
am is interesting when people are white. Am is just as interesting when people are black. And so, for example, think of ama. So ama, tell him that I am a ima. That is the neatest little complex because it's got the I. And then the m is the little remnant of am. And then a is all that's left of what started as going to. Say it over and over and you get some nice little pebble. You get this nice little stone. And if you crack the stone open, you can see little stripes inside and there might be a little rice crispy in there or something like that. It's an amazing thing. You start with, I am going to. Then you say, I'm going to. Then you say, I'm gonna. Then you say, amana. Then you say, Ima. That's how these things happen. If a Martian listened to Black English, they would just think of ama as one thing that combines I-ness with being future. And they just say that the marker of the future in the first person singular happens to be the suffix a. And it's interesting. Yes, there was a transitional stage with amana. And you know how we know it? Because Archer says it. Here is Archer from the Magnificent Cartoon Series. And here he sang amana. So you can think of Archer as being somewhere in between white and that's, that's too forced. Anyway, here, listen to Archer. Okay, Archer. Keep an eye on your six this time. Don't worry about me, Pam. Today's the day. I can feel it. I'm gonna... <laughs> then there's more about Am and black persons. Listen to minstrel lyrics. I'm sure that you know lots of us like to do that in our spare time. Or listen to Alexander's Ragtime Band, the 1911 hit written by Irving Berlin. And there's one lyric that you know can just kind of go right by. Some singers actually kind of patch it up, including Bessie Smith, because it sounds so odd. But listen to Ella Fitzgerald. This is a rather odd clip of hers. This is in the 50s, where she's singing the song. And listen to this idea about the bestest band, What Am. Come on in here, come on in here, Alexander's a ragtime band. Come on in here, come on in here, it's the best band in the land. They can play a bugle call like you never heard before. So natural that you want to go to war. That's just the best band. Well, damn, oh, my honey lamb, come on along, come on along. Let me take you by the hand. So that am the bestest band. And so you're using am not only in the first person singular, but you're using it in the third person singular. You're using it with we, you're using it with they. That was a minstrelism. And because it's always encountered in these ridiculous sorts of situations, it's often been thought that that was strictly some kind of joke, that nobody walked around saying they am the only ones or we am your parents. And it sounds so bizarre now. So it's easy to think, well, nobody ever said that. But you know, the story is changing. There are things that they don't want you to know. There are stories about English that remain untold. For example, let's say it's the depression and a lot of people are out of work. It's interesting how you know good things can come out of bad things. And so such and such made the trains run on time. During the depression, one way that people of a certain scholarly bent were kept working was through the Works Progress Administration, assigning them various artistic and scholarly projects, such as recording 
the slaves, the ex-slaves who were still alive at the time. If it's 1935, there are people who remember slavery who are elderly, but, you know, they're sitting and giving you an interview. So there are many, many, many interviews like this. And the funny thing is that if you read the interviews, and you're not really supposed to be thinking about this, but you can't help noticing that there's a lot of this, what a linguist might call invariant am. So there's a guy who is in one of these transcriptions. This is somebody writing what he said. And his name is William Moore, and he's 83. And he says, pretty soon they say it am safe for us to eat at night. And they watch for Mars Tom. That's Master Tom. One day Mars Tom's wife am in the yard. And it goes on and on like this. Now, you might think that this is something that the person mistranscribed. And one thing that's interesting is that in the actual recordings of these slaves, like the that where you can actually hear them talking, none of them use the am. But the thing is, there are only a few of those recordings. And so there are hundreds and hundreds of the transcriptions. The recordings are just a drop in the bucket. Now, there are people who ought to know, and you want to take them as authoritative as much as you possibly can, who said back then that that am was made up, just as we would think now. So Zora Neale Hurston said, if we are to believe the majority of writers of Negro dialect and the burnt cork artists, Negro speech is a weird thing full of ams and ises. Nowhere can be found the Negro who asks, am it? Of course, I was not trying for a Zora imitation, but you want to hear her? You can hear Zora Neale Hurston talking. 1943, she's on a show with Mary Margaret McBride. Mary Margaret McBride is a forgotten figure now. Think of her as roughly the Oprah of the 1930s and 40s. She was very white, but she filled roughly that space in the culture. Listen to Zora Neale Hurston speaking. Here it is. And this particular zombie whom I photographed with I think I'm the first person on earth and probably the last one to ever photograph a zombie. She had died in 1907 and nobody saw her anymore until 1936 when she was found naked on a road. But she remembered a little. She remembered where she used to live and she went to this plantation that used to be her father's, which was now her brother's. She was identified by her brother her ex-husband, her son, who was now grown, he was two or three years old when she died in uh, 1907, and she was identified, and she was officially identified by the Haitian government, and that was all the records of her death and her burial, and I photographed her in 1936. Notice that she says person for person because she's Southern. And so, as we've seen on this show, saying fireworks isn't only Brooklyn, it's also South. You never know what sounds are going to do. So Lillian Carter said Bleben on our Southern show. And Zora Neale Hurston, if you listen closely, Payson, not person, but Payson, just a little bit of it. But it would tell you right away that she was born in the South, like the vast majority of black people back then. You want to believe everything that Zora Neale Hurston says, and we am seems so strange. But you know, there's a lot of evidence that people did use am that way, black people specifically. So there's a Harlem Renaissance novel called Home to Harlem. And it's full of sentences like, to pick one of the ones that's better for general consumption, oh, these here am different chippies, I tell you. 
So chippies, I guess, is roughly honeys, homegirls, whatever. And so, oh, these here am different chippies, I tell you. And then how the brown skinned babies am humping it along, which I openly admit sounds like some great song from the time. But the thing is, this book is anthropological. This man is writing about these people with a serious perspective. He's trying to describe the lives of Southern migrants to Harlem in the 1920s. So it's unlikely that he would have them talking like minstrels. You get the feeling that these men really did say am like that at times. And it's in books. Thank you to my research assistant, Kara Schechtman, for digging some of these up. It's in a lot of serious literature written by black people in, for example, the late 1800s. So there's a novel called Imperium in Imperio by Sutton Griggs. This is a black person. And at one touching point, a mother says about her son, his name and Belton Piedmont, Arter is granddaddy. So I'm going to do that again. His name and Belton Piedmont, Arter is granddaddy. Arter, you know what that is? That's after in black dialect of the time, which you can also find in England. And it answers a question, which is why Jack and Jill sucks. So Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack fell down and broke his crown and Jill came tumbling after. That doesn't rhyme. Yeah, if it's water, then why after? Is that the best that they could do? No, of course not. It's because the way they composed it was Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack fell down and broke his crown and Jill came tumbling harder. And so it rhymes water, otter. So here's this person saying his name and Belton Piedmont. Now we're back across the Atlantic. Arter is granddaddy. Now, if this is accurate enough to get that ardor. And you can also see that ardor used by Jim in Huckleberry Finn and other places. That is genuine, old-timey black English. Well, then why is the am wrong? You get the feeling that it's real. Or, Mike, can I have the crackle? Because this is going to be a quote from 1884. And as we know, in the final two decades of the 19th century, there was always a crackle in the air. You can guess that's what you hear on the recordings. So give me the crackle. Thank you. So James Harrison, the grammarian, wrote, Am sometimes runs throughout all persons of present tense. He, am, we, am, etc. And this is a serious person. He's not doing like happy minstrel grammar. He's writing about the speech of what he calls the Negro. And he mentions this am. So after a while, you start to think, you know, black people probably did say we am, which is interesting. I'm always telling you language is always changing. And so wouldn't it be odd if black people in 1880 sounded exactly the way they sound now? So it's an interesting thing. And here is the kicker, the stories they don't want you to know. Well, I'm going to tell you something that I don't think it'll hurt you to know. This is how the story ends. Go to Britain, go way off into wherever, especially in the Southwest. Ask people who are so old they can barely make change, tell time, or talk on the phone. I mean, go find somebody 200 years old. Or go to the West Midlands, and I imagine there's a lot of coal there. Go find a coal seam, and there's probably somebody inside of it, and then ask them things. And people have done that, and you get these sentences. These are things that are pretty much extinct now, but people in the Southwest and in the West Midlands are recorded as late as the 1950s saying things like, because you a lot older than I. I don't know who that is, but I can tell that's how the person sounded. So not because you're a lot older than I, but because you a lot older than I. Or another person says, the big stands just on the top, you see. 
Well, after you took off that, you am right on the clay. And like I say, the deeper, the deeper you go. Well, that's the you am. And then somebody else says, uh, we drink water when we am thirsty. We drink water when we am thirsty. Not we are thirsty, but we am thirsty. That's supposed to be one of those criminals in 101 Dalmatians. So we am thirsty. White people did it. And these are the kinds of white people who ended up transported across the Atlantic or they went there themselves. If you spoke received pronunciation British English, the last thing you were going to do was go off to America and found a plantation and get bitten by some mosquito and, you know, chasing beavers around. That wasn't something that anybody did who had a choice as to whether or not they stayed home. If you went to America, you were desperate for some reason. And chances were you did not speak received pronunciation English. You spoke an interesting dialect. And so the indentured servants, they would have spoken dialects like this. Even the plantation owners themselves often would have spoken dialects like this. And so then slaves pick it up. And next thing you know, in the 1800s and into the 1900s, you have black American people saying we am. It's a story that's never been told. You're only going to get it here. Somebody ought to write a book. They ought to be planning it for roughly the beginning of next year, maybe with Cambridge. Anyway, so we have reached the end of this show, but there's some errata. First of all, Diana, you got me. I did last week's show on that ridiculous snow day, and I was in a hurry. And I said that the person singing the Sands of Time was Richard Kiley. It was not. It was Richard Oneto, who later replaced Richard Kiley. I'm sure that all of you have been offended that I got that wrong, and so I had to fix that. Also, I hear quite a bit from my Jewish listeners, and many of you were concerned about the way I described Pnei for face. And I said, oh, it just gets shortened in some cute little way, just like when you say something like, what did I compare it to? Lil Abner. Yes, all of you are correct. There is a huge difference between why you say Pnei and why you say Lil and Lil Abner. I was rushing past that. I was trying to explain the construct for those of you who are Hebrew speakers or Hebrew or Semitic fans. I flubbed on that. That fell flat, and I'm sorry about that. No, Pnei is not like Lil Abner. First time that sentence has ever been said. And also, I know what you're thinking. I I know what a lot of you are thinking, and I'm in your heads. Some of you are going to ask me about the 1930 girl crazy song, this is George and Ira Gershwin, where Gieber Goldfarb, who is the Jewish comedian in the script, sings, Goldfarb, that's I'm. So that's part of our am story too. Because I know I'm going to hear about that from some of you. I will play that. So you're thinking about this little song with this rather tired little joke. They needed a man who was brave and strong to rid the town of crime. That's I'm. They needed a man who would not take graft unless it was over a dime. That's I'm. I thought about putting that into this show, but the truth is I cannot find any evidence that that was anything but a little joke that Ira Gershwin used for that song. If any of you are aware of your great-grandfather, Max, or somebody like that, walking around saying things like the principle, that's I'm, then please let me know. But to my knowledge, that is just Gershwin trivia. 
It's always fun to be reached by those who correct these minor points of fact. I learned so much, and you can do that by reaching us at Lexicon Valley at Slate. See that transition? Slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. We, oh, no, we can't end with that stupid song. Now, let's, let's switch it up. What are we going to have? Um, why don't we go out on the theme song to Wait Till Your Father Gets Home? I'm thinking of that right now, but it, we can't end with gold for that sign. Mike, can we have that? Thank you so much. It's such a catchy song. Terrible show. I don't recommend it. For some reason, they put it out on DVD. Anyway, that's Lexicon Valley at Slate.com to listen to past shows and subscribe, or just to reach out, go to Slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. Mike Wolo is, as always, my very patient editor. And I am John McWhorter, and I guess now it's time for me to be <laughs> the father who gets home. Won't hurt him. I think my mom's just swell. But she starts to yell. Every time we have a bus, just wait till your father gets. Until your father gets, wait till your father gets home. See what I mean?